All right, so we're continuing this series called In Jesus' Name, Amen, as we've been walking through the book of John. And so before I jump into the text, I want to read you this letter that was written years ago. It starts with, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. We've been walking through the book of John for quite some time, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and today we're going to be covering a passage that talks about both love and hate, God's love for us and the world's hate for Him. But as we're going to study, we must remember where and what and to whom is being spoken, because since we've been going through this passage so slowly or through this book of the Bible, it's really easy to forget where we are. We're currently in the middle of John 15. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet on the night before he would go to the cross. He has sent Judas from out from all of them after sharing a meal with him because Jesus knew and was allowing Judas to go exercise his plan of betrayal. Jesus knows he will personally have to go to the cross. Jesus knows that after the cross, after his death, he will resurrect from the dead. He will show himself to hundreds of people and then ascend to heaven, and he knows that he would send the Holy Spirit in his place to lead and guide those who would and have trusted Jesus as Lord. Jesus is in the middle of describing this to his disciples, specifically 11 of the 13 that would become apostles that would help plant churches over all of Asia Minor. They would proclaim the truth of the gospel and would be part of God writing the New Testament through them. They've been following Jesus for three years of Jesus' public ministry. And now he's talking about leaving. Can you imagine this? You get to walk with Jesus. You're spending time with him. You're seeing him perform miracles. You're just enamored with how wonderful he is. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to leave. They probably couldn't understand this, nor did they want this. But God's plan through this was being explained to his apostles before they would be fully capable of understanding it. Maybe it's a little like premarital counseling. They were being told about what it would be like, what to prepare for, but really they're yet to experience it themselves, so they don't really understand. So that's what we're jumping into. Verse 9 is where we're going to start, where they're having this conversation. They've just had a meal, and so don't start to think just because it was two chapters ago when Jesus washed his feet, their feet are probably still a little damp. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Last week, we covered verses 1 through 8, where Jesus speaks about that he is the vine, that God is the vine dresser, the Father is the vine dresser, that we are the branches, and what it means to abide, and that God produces fruit in his branches. This word remain, or in other translations, which we talked about a lot last week, was abide, which means more about relying on God than trying for God, and it's really important that we understand the difference. Not that our effort doesn't matter, but it's that our effort doesn't save us. God does use our effort to sanctify us, but it has to be alongside our reliance upon Him. So now we see Jesus saying, as the Father has loved Him, He has loved His apostles, and He states, now remain in my love, abide in my love, rely on my love for you 
as your identity and what makes you mine rather than your effort and accomplishments. He doesn't say he loves us if we remain. He says, now remain. Keep abiding. Keep relying and trusting that I, God, know how to grow you to produce fruit through and in you. I don't know if there's a more beautiful type of love than the love of the Father to the Son. And Jesus himself says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Are you kidding me? I mean, I know I'm not an apostle, but I do know that Scripture makes very clear that God loves us, those that follow him and know him. God the Son can love the people of God the way the Father loves the Son. Think about that for a second. God loves you. I don't know if all of us really grasp that reality. I think a lot of us think, well, yeah, God, God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Yeah, that's a good verse. 17 is way better, actually, but we'll get to that. But God loves you. Not because of anything you've done, not because you tried really hard, but God loves you to show off his grace in you. Don't believe me? Let's see what the word of God says about the love of God. The disciple, or the, yeah, the disciple whom Jesus loves, John, writes not only the book of John, but writes three letters to the church, and then he writes the book of Revelation. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Do you believe that you're a son or daughter of the God Most High? Because if you do, he loves you. And then later on in chapter 4, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 19, just a few verses later, we love because he first loved us, the one that most people know. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So it's not just John who's known as the disciple of love because he talks so much about love. But what about Paul? What about the one who was killing Christians, ran into Jesus alive after he died, switches teams, and writes two-thirds of the New Testament? What does he say? To the church in Galatia, he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then he writes to the church in Rome, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He writes to the church in Ephesians. Paul writes to the church in Ephesians, one of the passages we talk about a lot. But because of his great love for us, Ephesians 2 verse 4, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then right he says in Romans 5 also, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and we'll get to what perseverance is in a moment. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think it's just New Testament? Not really. The book of Psalms. David says in Psalm 86, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Even Moses is quoted saying in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Here's my point that the scriptures are saturated with making known of God's love, that that is who he is, and it points out how he loves us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, wrote quite a while ago, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Because more often than not, he has a perfect love, a sacrificial love, and a lot of times the love that we give back to him is kind of worthless. It's kind of, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's almost, yeah, I love you, Lord, but I'm going to do life my own way. And yet Jesus calls his empowered, his indwelled by the Holy Spirit people to love. In verse 10 it says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So we just have to do what Jesus did. Uh Uh-oh. He says, keep my commandments. Last week we studied about fruit and perseverance. That was the whole point of the sermon. Fruit and perseverance. Jesus just gave us the method of perseverance. Here's what it is, to keep his commands. That's the method of perseverance. Perseverance doesn't save you, but people who are saved persevere, and perseverance is a continuation of loving obedience to him. It's a continuous loving obedience to him. So again, it's necessary to understand remain or abide is really more about relying rather than trying, because if we read this verse as trying harder, if we read this verse as I just have to do more, we can build a theology, a understanding of God that says God only loves those who try harder. And I got to be honest, I'm lazy. So that's not the point he's making. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, Jesus' Jesus's motivation has always been out of love for the Father. Everything he does is out of love for the Father. So doing what he says is what he does to please the Father because of his love for the Father. So let me give you, it's not really a mathematical equation, but I know how some of you think. So let me give you an equation when it comes to love. See, fruit comes from abiding. And abiding comes out of obedience. And obedience must stem from love. Let me say that again. Fruit comes from abiding. Abiding comes out of obedience. And obedience must stem from love. So you want to know how to remain in God's love? Do what he says. Why? Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in you if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord, and that's what the Spirit produces in his people. He isn't telling us something that is impossible with him. It is only impossible without him. And he empowers us with his Spirit. And he's making the point that those who are in Christ, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and obedience is not only possible, but it's what the Spirit does in us. So he goes on, verse 11, I have told you this, I have made known these things, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. As Jesus speaks to the apostles, the sent ones, the ones that are going to go and preach and heal people and point everything to Jesus, he wants their joy to be complete, and he starts with, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Listen, Jesus' joy doesn't come from circumstance. He knows where he's going. 
Jesus' joy comes from obeying the Father perfectly. He saw doing what his Father willed as his purpose, and he experienced a love from the Father that can only be understood in the Son's love for us. Not because we obey like big brother Jesus, but because what Jesus accomplished was gifted to us through grace, which is a gift getting what you don't deserve. Look at what David says in Psalm 19. He says, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. Anyone meditate on the Lord's decrees this week? And David is so passionate about his commands. Why? Because he knows by grace alone that he has a relationship with God, not by being perfect, but in the future, the Messiah would come and do for him what he could not do for himself. Listen, real talk. Joy doesn't come from material blessings. Let me say that again. Joy doesn't come from material blessings. Joy comes from a relationship with the Lord realized and experienced through obedience to his word. This is one of those things that I think so often we miss out on because we think that joy comes from, oh, I got this promotion, I got this new house, I got this or that. Joy is not happenstance. That might make you happy for a season, but what happens when that house gets old? What happens when interest rates go up? But joy comes out of your relationship with God that is experienced by doing what he says. Can I be real? Like, I'll start now. I am in process. Anyone else? Hallelujah. And none of us, and I'm going to, again, real talk, and I love you enough to tell you this, none of us are without deceit in our mouths. You're like, I don't lie, you exaggerate, so yes, you do. None of us are without insecurities. None of us are without anger or pride, but Jesus is, was, and always will be our perfection. If you're going to take a note, write that down. Jesus is our perfection, possessive pronoun. He is our perfection. And as we abide in him, as we rely on his perfection to be our salvation and trust him by doing what he says, we will find joy in our closeness to our God. Through God's son coming to us and living the life we couldn't, dying the death we should have, and physically rising from the dead. See, we don't have to work our way to God. God worked his way to us. Verse 12. My command, Jesus says, is love each other as I have loved you. Okay, so it's that easy. Just love others as Jesus loved us. <laughs> Christ loved. Why? So we can love both him and others. If you've been here or you have any Bible experience, you've probably heard of the greatest commandment. And in Matthew chapter 22, there are some teachers of the law trying to stump Jesus about the word that is him, by the way. And they try to stump him, and here's what it says in Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is awesome, because he's about to quote Moses right back at this guy. And he replies in verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. The entire Old Testament hangs on these two commandments. Love God and love others. Love God and love your neighbor. If only we could just get this, church. How would our community be changed? All we have to do is love God and love others. It's easy, right? 
The word that's used is a Greek word known as agape. It's a word that seemed to not really exist prior to the Greek New Testament. And the word agape had a paradoxical meaning, okay? Here's what I mean. It was both voluntary, this love was voluntary, meaning I've decided to love you, and it was involuntary. I can't help but love you. And our effort points us towards the voluntary. It points us towards the I've decided to love you even though you stinky. I've decided to love you even though you're not the best person in my life. I've decided to love you. Why? Because God's loved me. But the second one, the involuntary one, the I can't help but love you, that's because the Spirit of God resides in those who have trusted Jesus. If only it were possible for me to love like Jesus If only I could see people the way that God sees them, to see my brothers in the faith as men God is refining to be Christ-like, to see my sisters in the faith with purity and love, knowing that God is producing the fruit of the Spirit in them towards Christ-likeness as they obey his commands. If only I could see people far from God as people that God sacrificed his son for and gives the opportunity for the gospel message in the person and work of Jesus to become their salvation. If only, if only I could see people this way, if only I had the ability to do so. Spoiler alert, I and you do if we've trusted Jesus. If you are redeemed, if you are a committed follower of Jesus because his spirit resides in you, he resides in you to make you more holy, to make you more Christ-like so you can love like Jesus. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. It reminds me of, was it Wonder Years? It was Wonder Years. That was like in a song, but the second part's not in the song. You are my friends if you do what I command. Listen, sacrifice is at the center of God's love for this world. And our love for him also requires sacrifice. To love others, look around real quick. Just look at who's in this room. It takes work to love these people. Can we be real? The laying down of our agenda the laying down of our expectation that we are the center of the world. Listen, you're not Truman in the Truman Show. I'm glad second service got it. (laughs) To love others as Christ has, because listen, Jesus is the center of this world. He's the center of this universe, and we do everything out of what he's done for us. We are his friends, but he says if we do what he commands. This sounds punitive. This sounds like you better do this or this will happen. I better do this or I will lose this friendship. Have we ever had friends like this that it was all based on what we do for them? Well, that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. This is more about the result of one who is drawn by God and indwelled by his spirit. The spirit leads us to obedience. And if we are dominated, if we are led by the Spirit of God, it is the result of God's love being received by us that we can walk in his commands. Listen, he's not telling you to do something he doesn't do in you. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. This is a mind-blowing verse. 
Our obedience is not out of duty like a slave, but is motivated by love as it would be with a friend or a spouse. The Lord has made known the mystery of God, the mystery of heaven. He has explained eternal life and had given the disciples who would become apostles direct access to the wisdom of God. This isn't you. This is them. But the same spirit that resides in them resides in you if you've trusted Jesus. And this is not something that you would do for someone that's not your friend. Jesus did this for the apostles because of the loving relationship, and he would send them to go make much of him. Verse 16. Oh, this is fun. You guys ready? All right. Yeah. All right. Here we go. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. All right, real quick. We got to do some work. All right. It doesn't say I accepted Jesus. It says you did not choose me but I chose you. Jesus states that knowing him, they're having revelation to be exposed to them, them understanding the mind of God, their proximity to God in the flesh is not at all because they earned it or deserve it, but completely because of the sovereign will of a sovereign God that chose them and appointed them so that they would be fruitful. Why am I so passionate about this idea that God chose us? Because it says in the Bible and when we treat it as if we can choose him rather than he chose us, we start to make it as if we did something. It's God who saves us, not the other way around. And he saved us and he appointed us so that we could be fruitful, that the fruit of the Spirit would abound, that the people that Jesus chooses would be chosen to love to express God's love to one another and to the world that is in desperate need of salvation because the world was unable to work their way toward salvation. He chose us so that we would bear fruit. He chose us so that we could be models of grace, or as some theologians call it, trophies of grace. We didn't earn our salvation, and we don't produce our fruit. You want to take away? There you go. You didn't earn your salvation, and you do not produce your fruit. But he does, and he says that he will produce fruit in us, and it will last. These attitudes, the growth in the fruit of the Spirit, isn't something that just comes and goes. We start off somewhere, and as he grows us in the understanding of God, through the understanding of his word, his commands, as we obey them, we grow more in these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, and it does last. Why? Because it's eternal. So, <laughs> look at the end. So, that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Okay, wow. We've said this a few times. This gets misinterpreted, doesn't it? In Jesus' name, pony. No. This is the third time in this conversation that the disciples and Jesus have been talking, and Jesus brought up this idea, and it won't be the last one either. Mike made the point that what you ask in Jesus' name will be given to you in Jesus' authority and agenda. Like a CEO's signature, we don't get to force our own agenda, but when it's within the CEO's will, he will sign off on it. Last week, Jesus made the comment in verse 7 that if you remain, you abide in him, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. 
As we studied it, it was clear that this was not a blank check based on whatever desires we have as much as it's being saturated in God's will, revealed in His Word, that you would ask things in accordance with His will and His character. But here again, He alludes to this. Not that Jesus' name is the password to gain all the things that you ever want to have happen in Jesus' name. No, that's not how this works. But it is about the name that is above every name, the name of the person who is our direct access to God. We don't pray in the name of anyone but Jesus. Why? Why do we call this series, In Jesus' Name, Amen? Why is Jesus' name so important? Well, as Pastor Mike and I talked about this this week, he reminded me that it's about a relationship. It's about God's agenda, not our own. And we know his agenda by reading his word, and we experience him by living out his word in obedience. And so when we ask according to his will, when we ask in his name according to his character, the things that he wants to have happen through us do. Verse 17, this is my command. Love each other. Um, this was a command, not a suggestion. Not a, hey, if you get around to it. But at the same time, he didn't say, my command is that you'd be sinless. <laughs> I'm out. He didn't say, my command is that you'd be perfect. But Jesus reiterates this command that these disciples are to love one another. In chapter 13, it says, after washing the disciples' feet, he told them, love one another by this, all men will know that you are mine, that you are my disciples. Jesus says, I chose to love the Father loves me, and I chose you to love, and I love you, and you are to love one another, and this is the fruit of being led by my Spirit. Jesus commands of the disciples and us to do what he empowers us to do. Church, I can't encourage you enough to understand that he's not telling you to do something that he does not empower us to do. When you start to think, oh, I can't love that person, but Christ died for that person. Christ created that person in his image. Why can't you love that person? Right now I should be preaching it myself because I had 37 names just show up. Damn. But look at what he says. It's one of the clearest examples as Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders. He says it this way. Or maybe it, was, he, it sounds like he was talking to the disciples. And now I can't remember. Luke chapter 6, here's what he says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. I'm a sinner. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting it to be repaid in full, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great." And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Oh, hallelujah. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I know we can read that. We can start to think, well, okay, if I just do this thing, then I will be God's. No, no. The Spirit in you does this thing. And a theme of being God's, not Mormon like I'm a God, that's not what this means, but a theme of being God's possessive pronoun, is that we love unlike the world. We love one another. We bear fruit of love. 
and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit by loving God and loving others. And this is impossible without God. It's impossible without God empowering us, without God choosing us, and without God first loving us. Verse 18, now he's going to do some contrasting. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Does anyone struggle with hate? Okay, a couple of honest people. Praise God. Now Jesus is going to contrast love and hate. Did you guys know that love isn't the op- or hate isn't the opposite of love? Apathy is. Love is a strong emotion. Love is a reaction to someone. Hate is the same thing. But apathy, to not care about someone or something, is really the opposite. If you hate someone, you care. You just care to dislike them. And that takes effort to hate. So he informs and reminds his disciples that if they experience hate, hate from the world, it's because they first hated Jesus. And these apostles represent Jesus. Listen, I know how people misuse and misunderstand this. Some people act like jerks, okay? Under the banner of if someone hates me, it's because they hated Jesus. No, they hate you because you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Honestly, I don't think you can be a jerk and think that you represent Jesus. You can be honest by what you say, but listen, how you say things matters. There's a young woman who was at San Jose State. I used to do a lot of ministry at San Jose State, and I was speaking at Pulse. Where are our Pulse people? <laughs> wow, that was pretty weak. All right, so, so I was speaking at Pulse, and there was this young lady in the back, and a friend of mine had told me that she was going to come to the group. And I'm speaking. Remember that little chapel? It was so cute. And I'm speaking in the chapel, and she's in the back, and she's sitting by the window, and she's playing on her phone, and, I'm, and I've been told she doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, and she's pretty antagonistic against Jesus, so of course, they sent her to me. Yay. And so, I'm preaching. She's not listening. She's playing on her phone the entire time, and I'm like, oh, all right. And so, then when I was done, I saw her make a beeline, and she left, and I was like, all right, well, I guess I didn't get to talk to her. And then I walk outside, and I see her, and I walk right up to her, and I say her name to her, and she's like, how do you know me? And I said, well, your friend told me you were going to come. And she goes, oh. And so then for the next three hours, she told me about how she, was, uh, she had gone to a few different things, a part of another ministry on campus, and she really hated that ministry. And because of that, it started to give her an excuse to not listen to anything about God. And I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, well, that ministry told me that if I don't believe in Jesus, then I'm going to hell. And I said, okay. And she goes, yeah, and they just, they, that's all the thing they always lead with. That's the thing they always want to tell me. We, they're always talking to me about this. And I said, okay. And after about three hours of talking downstairs from her dorm room, at some point I just went, yeah, but if you don't love Jesus, why would you want to spend eternity with him? God gives you what you want. So if you want him, you get him. If you don't want him, you don't get him. So what they said was actually true. And she goes, well, yeah. I said, but what's the difference? She goes, but you didn't lead with that. She was way more open to have a conversation about eternal things rather than, hey, you sinner, you're going to hell. Well, if we don't want Jesus, he gives us what we want. If we want him, he gives us what we want. So then he says in verse 19, Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its, its own. This is NIV, but it fills ESV and very Yoda. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So Jesus puts the onus on himself. The world may hate those who trust and follow and obey Jesus because they were chosen by him. This isn't because they're better than anyone else. 
even though some Christians absolutely act as if they are better than other people, which really, if you think about it, makes no sense. I don't think someone who received a gift should ever act like they paid for it. Do you? But because of this trophy of grace understanding that God saves those who he chooses to bear fruit through, not because they would, would or could bear fruit on their own, but because God can show his incomparable riches of his mercy and his grace using unlikely people like you and I to be image bearers. Listen, I wouldn't pick us. Would you? Look around again. I would not pick us. I would pick other types of people. But God chooses us. Verse 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus is implying that those who serve Christ won't have a better circumstance than Christ. We celebrate Good Friday when Jesus went to the cross, so don't think you're not going to have to die to yourself to follow Jesus. And if he got persecuted and they represent him, then they too will be persecuted. But if people obey Jesus' teachings, then the apostles would have people obey their teaching because Jesus said that what the Father told him, look in verse chapter 12, for I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And if Jesus said all that the Father had told him, then the apostles, the sent ones, would speak on behalf of Jesus and people who trust Christ would trust the apostles' teaching, the New Testament. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And Jesus again points out the authority in his name, not that he's a password, not that he's a secret code. It is the one that not only gives authority to ask things, this name gives the authority to ask things in accordance with his character, but because of his name, people can also be put off, both by him and by his representatives. I've known people who claim Jesus, but they don't seem to act anything like him. Listen, the theme of this passage, the theme of this book is love. Cue the Beatles song. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can be uber spiritual or lift spiritual, whatever. But if you are super spiritual without love, it is of no worth. Your work is a clanging symbol, Paul says. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Love is what God does for us. Love is what God draws us to. Love is what God empowers us to do for one another and our enemies and our neighbors. Don't get it twisted. God is love. The Bible says that, but that doesn't get to be whatever you think it is. It, it is a sacrificial love. It is a love that leads us to action. It is what God's people do. Sometimes loving people is loving someone and giving them time when it's super inconvenient for you. Sometimes love is making someone feel special. Sometimes love is having a hard conversation with someone because you see them taking a nosedive off a cliff personally or spiritually. Love doesn't always look the same. 
But it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a work of God. It is sacrificial, and it requires relationship. How can you truly love someone if you don't actually know them? Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. They? It implies the Jewish nation that believed that they were God's people, even though they rejected God's Son. This doesn't mean that if Jesus hadn't come, they would have been sinless, but He came, and now their sin has been even more exposed to them. It was sin that blinded them to who Jesus is. It is sin that blinds some of us now to who Jesus is. And they were unwilling to recognize the miracles and the love that he extended to the least of these people because in their religious arrogance, they couldn't accept that God would have to come and save them spiritually because they believed that they were good people because they kept the law. But they really didn't. The law was not created to be fulfilled by man. Our sin condition excludes us from that capability. The law was to point out our need. And the answer to that need had been around for roughly 33 years, walking amongst them, and their spiritual elitism closed their minds and eyes to God's glory revealed in God's Son. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father as well. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. These are fighting words. A lot of people, listen, a lot of people treat God like a spiritual buffet. Did you guys know that? Did you know some of you do that? (laughs) I guess that's not funny. We take a little from this religion. We dabble a little bit in this cult. We try to be moral and not offend anyone and then consider ourselves a pretty decent human being. Listen, I do absolutely love you guys. And I love you enough to tell you that you are not a decent person. (laughs) I say that with laughter because none of us are good. At the core of who we are, there is a sin condition that leads us to worship ourselves, to worship idols instead of the creator of the universe, And Jesus isn't just a representative of God's, he is God with skin. So if you reject him, you are rejecting God the Father as well. And the whole point is you're not good enough, but Jesus is, and he is our perfection. But because of God's great love for us, he sent his son to walk among us. To not just be an example, but to be the sacrifice that would pay for the sins of many. And our response should not be to try to earn the salvation that was given to us as a gift but to bow a knee to God who came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves by dying in our place on the cross, being resurrected from the dead in victory and ascending to heaven where one day he will return. Our response should never be trying harder to be moral. Listen, trying harder to be moral in your religion is like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> True. But we, by faith, should trust that God, through grace, has given us his son's reward for his son being perfect because we cannot be, and Jesus gifted that to us. Verse 25, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus quotes the Psalms. He quotes King David, who uh, said this in two different places where it says that 
uh, people would hate the Messiah without reason in Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69, 4. They hate him without reason because they misunderstand him and they misunderstand their need for a savior. They misunderstand that Jesus didn't come to condemn, but he came to save. He didn't come out of hate for people, but as a solution to people's sin problem. He doesn't come to make us more moral. He comes to make us holy. And holiness requires God. Moralism requires pride. And the word constantly says God opposes the proud. John 3.16, great verse. 17, love it even more. John writes, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why? Because God loves us, church. He loves us. But then he goes on, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If there is a cure for your condition and you're unwilling to take it, you will die. Jesus is the cure. At the end of the day, Christianity is not about trying harder to be good or doing humanitarian work. Christianity is not even about keeping the teachings of a Jewish rabbi alive. Christianity is not a spiritual TED Talk, nor a religious concert. Christianity is all about Jesus and the awareness of the world to realize that they need him. Maybe today you don't think you need him. You think you're good for whatever reason. There might be a ton of good excuses. I'd contend that you're not good without him. But my words mean nothing in comparison to God's words. So let's read what God said through Paul to the church in Rome. He says, this righteousness, this right standing before God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, meaning Jew and everybody else, that's most of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when I say you're not a decent person, I'm not making that up. Scripture says that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm so grateful that even though I've sinned, God paid for it. All and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a payment, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All oh, those are good words. And those are words that we give and tell others because at the end of the day, you can be the most moral person, you can seem to be the most religious person, you can come to church every week, you can exegete text in Hebrew and in Greek, you can know the context, you can know everything, you can totally miss who Jesus is. And I don't want us to miss him. I want us to be a people that live our lives for him. Why? Because he empowered us to love like he did. 